Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, this is Eat Sleep Work Repeat. I'm Bruce Taisley. Here's why you're here. You're either here because you want to make work better, and that might be for you, or it might be for your team, or you're just kind of interested in the science of making work better, and someone suggested you come along here. Or maybe you came here before, and you've liked some of the episodes, and you've decided to come for another one. Well, thank you for coming back, and it's really appreciated. As I drop these, it's Blue Monday in the UK, and that's the day we're told that it's the most miserable day of the year. Marketing construction, you might say. Well, even if it is, then isn't it an appropriate time to draw attention to how bad work is for a lot of us? I was chatting to someone last week, and they were saying how miserable the the working existence is at their work. And that's what we're trying to change here. So if you know someone who's just having a tough time from work, the objective of this podcast is just to give a bit of evidence. And uh, I was thinking about this. So um, I'm thrilled and I'm I'm immensely grateful for everyone who bought the book, The Joy of Work, last week. The pre-sales were way beyond what anyone expected. Thousands upon thousands of pre-orders. There's a, a really weird rule that if a book is deemed a manual... And look, this is definitely not a manual. Have a look at it. Uh, Then it won't count towards the chart. So we're now in the hands of the Sunday Times and they have to decide if they think it's a manual or not. Fingers crossed. Only a lunatic would call it a manual. But uh, can't count on anything till that happens. But who reads this book? Well, hopefully troublemakers and people who just want to change things in their own team dynamic can read this. And uh, all that the chart does, all the Sunday Times chart does, is it means that bookshops in Harrogate, bookshops in Aberdeen, bookshops outside a metropolitan elite might stock a copy of the book. So, um, so that's why the chart matters. And I'm immensely grateful. If you've enjoyed it, please do share a, a review on Amazon. Amazon. You know, if you've got issues with it, I'd love you to email me. My email's at the back of the book. Email me, WhatsApp me, link into me. Don't WhatsApp me. Uh, but all those things are welcomed. So in the spirit of Blue Monday, the, the story of improving work we've sort of covered heavily on this podcast is getting evidence. And so I'm going to arm you with two pieces of academic research for you today. That in itself sounds arid. It sounds like it's going to be unwelcome and unwelcoming and dry but far from it so firstly we're going to have an exploration into loneliness at work and then there's an investigation into whether working harder helps us achieve more in our jobs so firstly something that might not seem directly connected to people in work initially but it's about loneliness Julianne Holt-Lunstadt is professor of psychology and neuroscience at Brian Young University 
and we start talking about the problem of loneliness in society and then go on and consider how loneliness is really growing at work. So Professor of Psychology at Brian Young University, this is Julianne holt Lunchstadt. I, I guess it's it's sort of it's a strange thing to find yourself as as one of the the experts on, but you're you're an expert on loneliness. And do you, do you want to explain why why loneliness is a growing concern for us all right now? Uh, sure. Yeah. I guess I should clarify first of all that my focus is primarily on social connection, and of course, loneliness is an indicator of a lack of social connection. There are a variety of ways of looking at how that might be growing. One way of looking at that is demographics. Uh, And so we see across a variety of indicators that there is evidence that people are becoming less socially connected. For instance, marriage rates are declining, fewer people are having children, or the rate of childlessness is increasing. The number of single occupancy households or living alone is higher than ever. And this is true for not only the US, but many European nations and the UK, uh, as well as other industrialized countries. But of course, that's those are kind of crude indicators, right? Because you can live alone and still be very socially connected. And certainly you can be single and still very socially connected. (laughs) But nonetheless, both of these are still robust indicators of risk. To look at specifically loneliness or other kinds of indicators, we also see the size of of social network is shrinking, fewer people are participating in social groups, and many nationally representative samples have found that significant portions of the population are lonely. These surveys, of course, may vary slightly. I've seen rates anywhere from 25% to over 50%. And so even if you take the most conservative of these, you know, closer to 25%, that's still a quarter of the population that considers themselves to be profoundly lonely, which, of course, is is certainly a concern. And the thing that really was stark in one of the papers that I read that you'd you'd put together was that this has a, a really serious injurious effect on people's health. Is that right? I mean... Probably the best way to, to compare is is the comparison to maybe other things that we see as damaging for our health. Right. Yeah. So I I conducted two meta analyses, and what that means is that, that uh, my team we gathered all of the evidence that had been published, so that was available worldwide, and combined this data, this worldwide data to look at the overall risk for premature mortality. And as you said, we also wanted to make sure that we compared it to the kinds of factors that we take very seriously for our health to really benchmark to what extent we need to take this seriously. And so in the first of these, we looked at all indicators of social connection. And when you average across these, the risk is equivalent to uh, smoking up to 15 cigarettes per day, and exceeds that of many other factors, including excessive alcohol consumption, obesity, physical inactivity, and air pollution, just to name a few. The second one looks specifically at isolation, loneliness, and living alone. And while it didn't quite reach that level of smoking, it still, it still exceeded that of obesity, physical inactivity, and air pollution. So 
these are factors that, that really have a profound effect on risk for premature mortality, and so much so that you know we really should be taking this quite seriously for our health. And tell me this, social connection appears to play an important part in terms of us feeling a sense of belonging in groups and us feeling welcomed in groups. Does work always help to improve our social connection? Well, of, of course, we need to recognize that any kind of relationship, whether it is a work relationship or a relationship with friends or, or any, any role for that matter, we need to also recognize that not all relationships are positive. And so negativity in relationships can actually place a risk on us. We need to focus on positive, supportive relationships as being beneficial because negativity and conflict are sources of stress and and we have good evidence on the negative health effects of stress. So our, our relationships can be very powerful, both as a protective factor as well as a risk factor, uh, depending on not only whether they exist or not, but the quality of, of those relationships. I saw you talking uh, in one place where there, there was a survey and, and someone was being asked about um, their birthday and they admitted that they'd not had any contact with anyone for a week. From, from your experience, how common is that form of, of loneliness? Is, is, that a, is that growing? You know, that's, that's a really good question. Thankfully, that more extreme form of loneliness is not as prevalent. Uh, so if you look at some of the most extreme form of that where people feel always lonely, depending on the, the country that you look at, is a little bit smaller. The, it's also a real concern about whether or not this is growing. And unfortunately, this is something that has not been routinely collected. And so it's difficult to know to what extent it is increasing. There is some evidence that it's increasing, but for instance, we we can easily say through census records that the percentage of living alone has increased. The percentage of loneliness is a little bit harder to do, but with the recent appointment of the UK's Minister for Loneliness, I believe that there are plans to do this in the UK, which will give us much clearer answers to that question. When, when you're looking at sort of uh, social connection, I, I was looking at something by Roy Baumeister. Which certainly for me, it was new, but like I suspect it's, it's well familiar. And he was he was talking about the importance of belonging, actually sitting almost right at the top of, of Maslow's hierarchy of needs or the, as is important as psychological needs. Is that the current thinking still? Is Do people still see a sense of belonging and, and social connection as almost as important for humans as anything else? Well, of of course, it might depend on who you ask. (laughs) In the scientific community, I do believe that there is this growing perception that indeed this social connection is a fundamental biological need. And there is neuroscience evidence to support that as well. And it makes sense in the sense that if you think about a number of species, being part of a group offers protection, you know, whether it's threats from predators or protection from the elements or pooling of resources to obtain food. Being part of a group is protective. So it makes sense that biologically we would be wired for connection. And as I mentioned, neuroscience evidence suggests that physical pain and social pain 
carry similar neurological pathways. This would make sense because it it would be a, a biological mechanism to indicate if you're alone or lack trusted others around you, that there would be a signal for you to reconnect because it would be more adaptive for you to be around others. So for instance, the late John Cassiopo argued that the perception of loneliness was much like hunger or thirst, that it was in essence the biological drive to motivate us to reconnect just like hunger and thirst are the biological motives to urge us to eat and to drink. So it's almost driving us, it's trying to drive a behavior in us. And and tell me this, um, I saw work by Emma Seppala who uh, wrote about how um, one of the things that she'd observed was that exhaustion at work was going up, but also um, one of the consequences of burnout at work is that loneliness at work had gone up. I, I just wonder if you've got a perspective on that, whether loneliness can exist even when we're around other people, or is that a different thing to, to what you study? Oh, absolutely. Loneliness can occur even though you're around other people. Yeah. In fact, um, so I I can kind of clarify the distinction between social isolation and loneliness because they often get used interchangeably, but they actually mean very different things. So isolation is, is thought to be more objective. So lacking relationships or infrequent contact or the lack of presence of others, whereas loneliness is really that subjective experience, feeling alone that may or may not correlate to the the existence of others around you. So it may be the discrepancy between your desired level of connection and your actual level of connection. So someone can still feel profoundly lonely when they are around others. It's not surprising that people might feel lonely at work, particularly given some work environments at all. It, there's not a, a culture of collaboration um, and it's more of a competitive environment, or they they just simply lack much interaction, that someone could still feel very lonely, even though they're around other people. That's fascinating, isn't it? Because I guess when the government minister and, and when policymakers are looking at these things, they're more likely to think about the the loneliness of older demographics, but mm-hmm. maybe would miss those in work. Right. And uh, certainly, it's important to recognize this among older adults, but there is recent evidence that one of the highest demographics of the prevalence of this is among 18 to 24 or 18 to 28, depending on the survey, these younger adults. And of course, loneliness can occur among anyone, any one of us. And, and so while the prevalence may be higher among these groups, any one of us can feel lonely at times, but it is also important to recognize that distinction between isolation and loneliness because if efforts are simply trying to just increase contact, that might reduce social isolation, but not necessarily loneliness. Right. Okay. Okay. And, and uh, have, you seen, have you seen workplaces trying to tackle this or is this like a, a hidden secret about a lot of workplaces? Well, you know, I think I see some efforts from things like putting a ping pong table in a common area um, or, you know, these kinds of things in the workplace to try and foster more interaction. While these might be helpful, again, we do need to recognize that 
just increasing interaction may not necessarily decrease loneliness if there isn't a relationship of mutual respect and trust and and all of the kinds of factors that create a meaningful relationship. And, And so we need to distinguish between just simple interaction and and meaningful relationships if we want to really address loneliness more profoundly. And, and sort of final question for me. Um, policymakers are, are, are often reaching out and, and they're trying to understand this. Is there anything that you've seen that has maybe been introduced on a, a local community level or even on a workplace level that's had a remarkable and unexpected effect in, in reducing loneliness? That's a really good question. I see some really intriguing and remarkable efforts. And and as far as uh, loneliness in the workplace, this can be related to either a lack of feeling like you belong with the others at your workplace, or it could be that you bring your own loneliness because of other circumstances. Maybe you've had to move to a new location and you have no social network anymore And so you're bringing this loneliness to the workplace. And so workplace er, loneliness can come from uh, a variety of sources as well. Yeah, and I just wonder whether the the prevalence of email communication in offices now means that what would previously been an been an opportunity to wander over and chat to someone and maybe bridge from work chat into social chat, those opportunities are now being crowded out by the volume of emails going up. Right. And there was a really intriguing study where they found that even unrelated social chatter, (laughs) social interaction in the workplace, even if it was unrelated to work, actually was associated with higher productivity, suggesting that when you have better, stronger relationships in the workplace, you're more committed to the workplace and you're likely to do better work efforts to increase this may actually not only help the well-being of employees, but might help employers' bottom line as well. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome back. I, I wanted to talk next to two researchers who really set about investigating if long working hours or working harder leads to greater workplace success. I posted a link to their article and you're going to be able to take a look at that. Adi Giro Abostaki and Hans Frankort set out to see whether hard work leads to success. Firstly, as Adi Giro says, this wasn't a small piece of work. We have data from approximately 52,000 European employees from different European countries. I think we have in our sample 36 countries. What's the association between work effort, well-being and career-related outcomes? So they wanted to work out the impact specifically on career-related outcomes and well-being, career advancement, things like that. They wanted to work out the impact of longer work and harder work. And there's a clear reason why they wanted to do it. It's because we have an association in our heads, don't we, that working longer hours leads to promotion. And they wanted to objectively explore whether that was the case across 50,000 people across Europe. So the reason we started with, uh, with this paper was that, I mean, there is a lot of literature that shows that working more is, is not that good for the employee well-being. It might not bring happiness, for example. It might cause stress. And there, are, there is other literature that says that basically if you work hard, it might pay off in terms of work-related outcomes. So you might have better career, uh, that if you put a lot of, effort, uh, of work effort, it, it is like a sign, uh, like a signal that you are doing, uh, that, you, that you are very motivated. So that might bring you very good results in terms of career prospects within the company. But these two literatures do not necessarily speak to each other. Here's the killer thing. The authors say in office jobs, long hours are often used to signal status. We work longer to look more committed. We come in earlier, we stay later. And when you look at the outcome, working longer often doesn't lead to better status. So we wanted to see if it actually pays off. So for example, yes, you might be suffering from stress or from fatigue if you put a lot of hours or if you work with high intensity. And high intensity means that with very high speed or you work non-stop or with very tight deadlines. So we wanted to see if, okay, your well-being might be affected, but you might get something positive out of it, which is better career prospects or uh, you have a better career future, let's say, in the company. What we found was basically that uh, if you work uh, more, if you put more work effort because you expect something that might not necessarily materialize. So what we find is that uh, work effort relates to negative uh, well-being, but also to negative career-related outcomes. So that's intriguing. Why is this? What's the, what's the explanation? If status is defined as work recognition or a better career advancement, then what we find is that this is not necessarily the case. So if you want to stand out by putting more work effort, let's say I work overtime because I want to be seen like I'm working very hard and that will bring me something, we don't really find that in the paper. Yeah, so I think, I think that's why this is one of the intriguing findings, right? So yes, it's, it's probably necessary to work hard, in many white-collar jobs, you don't want to work harder. 
<laughs> than your colleagues. Um, and so because, yes, those people that uh, will become extremely successful are very likely to be working very hard. But most people that work very hard actually don't become that successful. On the average, the returns seem to be negative. That, that's one of the, the interesting findings. This leads us to one of the challenges at work. We can see tiredness in performers or in athletes, but we disguise it more effectively in knowledge workers. If someone's been working all night, it's not immediately clear that they're objectively worse at their jobs or their ideas are worse. There are some uh, alternative explanations. One of them is, for example, you don't have time to recover. So if we think of professionals, for example, that they stay uh, in the office until 8, 9, 10 sometimes, so there is not a lot of time to recover and then you go back next day and be... uh, I don't know, uh, you're not tired, so you can put a lot of effort and work productively. So one explanation is that you work a lot, but that extra work is not productive. So lack of recovery. Or, for example, if you work with high intensity, because one of the ideas of the paper is that, you know, it's not just overtime that we need to think of as work effort, but also how fast you work during the day. So if you work very fast or without uh, breaks or with tight deadlines, then it could be that you make more mistakes. So the quality of your work is affected. So if you don't deliver something that is, let's say, of high quality, then most likely your career would be affected. This is one of the, um, one of the interesting elements that where we see more overwork is exactly in those professions where it's more difficult to measure people's performance based on tangible outputs, either because the outputs are very infrequent a big report every six months, or simply because the tasks that these people perform have a very large subjective component to them. Uh, it's a matter of expert opinion, so to speak. And so, and so that's why uh, we believe you see a lot of, especially overwork among white collars and in particular among professionals. So the paper that we've been discussing has three elements to it. Intensity, hours worked and discretion. Discretion is a critical thing. If we feel forced to work long hours, it's worse than driving ourselves to do it. Yes, so basically what we are saying in the paper is that, okay, so what happens if you give to the employees discretion and discretion over their working time, so they choose when to start their work and when they finish it. So in other words, they can choose to work overtime, for example, or you give them discretion how to do their job. So to choose the methods or the speed. What happens if you give to the employees this kind of discretion? Are these negative associations that we find, are they going to be attenuated? So and what we find is that if you give employees discretion, then these negative relations are less negative. So we still find that there is a negative association, but it becomes less negative. And it's interesting because we don't find that discretion can actually reverse the direction, meaning that it's not going to become positive. So it's not that if you work overtime or with high intensity, but you choose to do it, that will have a positive relation with your well-being, that you will be, let's say, less stressed or less fatigued or more satisfied. That's not the case. It's just that you are going to be a bit less stressed. Still stressed, but a bit less. The same with work intensity. It helps, but it doesn't change the whole situation. So, so one of the interesting aspects, uh, putting these three elements together, intensity, um, hours and discretion, is that uh, one might ask whether um, discretion has different effects in alleviating the consequences of the negative consequences of intensity versus hours. Now, one thing we find is that work intensity is much, much more strongly negatively associated with well-being and career outcomes than hours of work. 
that's interesting in itself. But one might then ask, well, what does discretion do to perhaps bridge this gap between the negative consequences of intensity versus those of, of ours? And we find that even with discretion, intensity is much worse than long hours in employees without discretion. This is um, an order of magnitude worse than ours. Overall, they seem to conclude that intensity seems to be the bad thing. The authors say that understanding of research like this is why organisations should change their philosophy of work. Uber used to have a phrase, for example, which is work harder, work smarter, work longer. And they've changed it to work harder, work smarter. But the authors say that actually the, the working harder part is the worst and most toxic part. So if we've got a highly stressful job, but we're leaving on time, that can actually be more injurious than something that's maybe more manageable, but over a longer day. Now it's smarter and harder. And, right. and what we are saying is actually, well, the harder uh, is problematic, right? Yeah. Because that, that's actually more problematic yeah. than longer. Than right? longer, so. yeah. <laughs> It's worth saying that the authors say there's even more harm that they don't measure. So the whole of the research they were doing was psychological stress and the impact of, of that on us. But uh, they say that high blood pressure is one of the consequences of long work and hard work. And so they didn't measure that. So work's even more toxic than what's laid out here. That is very strongly associated with the number of hours of work. And so there are negative consequences of long hours that we don't consider. Equally, working under pressure has associations with blood pressure too, right? And so, so I guess we're, we're looking at certain outcomes and we're saying based on those outcomes, well-being and career, uh, work intensity seems to be the, the stronger predictor. And so that seems to be the area where more policy attention might be necessary, certainly more awareness. This is an interesting challenge when certain offices are banning people from accessing their emails out of work. I think it has to, do, to, to start with with a manager or a person that has the power, let's say, inside the company to say that's not the way we're going to do it. Sometimes we have to stay longer, it's fine. Sometimes we have to be quick, sometimes, but sometimes not the other way around because it seems that it's, it's so institutionalized that we don't know how to work without it. Let's put it that way. So we believe that probably it has to come at the, I mean, it, the, the impact. And if we want to make a change, I mean, it has to start at the upper level and then move down. So to summarize, if the researchers believe that longer hours don't lead to happiness or promotions then what would they advise they say that even if you're working long or hard the most important thing to ensure you think about is recovery so i, I can speak for myself personally since we finished this project um, i take breaks and leave the building right i go around the block so that's that's uh, that's one of the things you might do right so uh, i used to eat lunch at my desk and now I don't do this. Um, and, and I notice that it helps my recovery. There are researchers looking particularly at recovery that find that uh, such breaks, uh, even micro breaks, you might say, uh, are effective in, in essentially helping you recharge your batteries, right? So, so I think that that's, that's um, uh, an important point. And, and so the awareness is important. Even if you have to work long hours, you can, you can try and take those breaks try and make more of a, of a lunch break. So overall, working hard's the worst, working long is the second worst, and both could be made better by breaks. Better breaks, more discussion in the office. Hopefully they're two actionable uh, learnings that you can get from today's bits of research. If you're interested in more, you can find an article on their research on the notes of this episode, and you'll see that by sort of tapping your podcast app, and you should be able to see that. You can also rate and, and review us. Uh, on Apple Podcasts while you're there. Hopefully some of what you've heard today can inform discussions about you trying to improve your own workplace.
The next episode is with just an icon of this sort of new work movement. He's the author of Deep Work. He's the guy who really has sort of told us that we're getting nothing done with all this shallow work, with all these little interruptions. And he created The Monk Mode Morning. He's written a new book. Uh, Cal Newport has now got a new book coming out next month about digital minimalism and eliminating technology from our lives. It's a brilliant discussion. One of the things I've heard recently, someone says, if you hear something new and it doesn't immediately feel jarring, then it's not new. And I guarantee there's going to be some things that Cal Newport says in that discussion that you're going to be uh, more than a little bit shocked and anxious by. So I think you're going to love that discussion. Cal Newport next week. Thank you for all the emails and, and LinkedIn's. By all means, share your thoughts. Appreciate you getting in touch. I'm Bruce Aisley. See you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.